We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering, as we do each week, to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, too. Go to our community's Facebook page. Post your thoughts. So this shorter lesson is how to change our minds. <clears throat> In the Thursday email, I said, let's talk neurons and growth. Changing, rewiring, renewing our minds. Now, a couple books to consider for your summer reading. One I mentioned in our January lesson, uh, Tiny Habits. This has been such a super helpful book. I, you know, I read it probably last fall, and I am still talking about it, thinking about it, integrating it into how I approach life. Um, Denise and I are talking about how it changes our very approach to life. It is just an incredibly helpful book. So I would encourage you to get that. It is well worth your summer reading. The other book was written by the guy who wrote The Righteous Mind. We studied Righteous Mind a few years ago together uh, when we were dealing with um, political division. Well, this book, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, when I saw the subtitle, you know, I just had to get it. It's Finding uh, Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. They're both well worth your time. I would encourage you to read them this summer. And they'll go along with this shorter lesson we're going to do. So this is some lesson stuff that I didn't get to jan in January when we were talking about adapt or die, how change happens and how it doesn't. And, as we often do, we're going to get to the point, but we're not going to get there immediately. We're going to get there in kind of a roundabout way. And we're going to get there in a roundabout way today by starting with revisiting evolutionary history. And in particular, how our brains developed over the long period of time it took for, us to get, took for them to get into the shape that they are now in. I think it's going to be really important background, important context for understanding how wise the ancient wisdom really is and why our spiritual tools are as effective as they are when it comes to changing our minds or, as Paul said, renewing our minds. So let's start with neurons. <coughs> when I introduced this morning's guided meditation, I highlighted a perennial problem for human beings. And that, that, that is this, there is reality that is, and there is reality that is our perception. And our perception of reality and reality as reality is are not the same. Some context to explain why. Our brains did not start in the shape that they currently exist. Our brains started as little tiny things, uh, lizard brains, um, much simpler than they are now. And those lizard brains are still inside of our heads designed for a single function, and that is to keep us alive. They're designed to get us to respond immediately to environmental stimuli. They're designed to help trigger reactions that help lizards and humans survive. So, for example, there will be a hunger stimuli, a food stimuli, and we eat and drink and procreate and protect our territory. The part of our brains that uh, run in that lizard brainstem part are run on protocols, uh, non-thoughtful, non-considered reactions that, that we barely notice when they happen. But they keep us alive, these lizard brains. But over time, the, the human brain uh, added some extra stuff on top of the lizard brain. Uh, 
put some patches on it, uh, kind of like adding an addition to the house. And the first one uh, on top of the lizard brain was the, uh, by the way, you and I, we all have lizard brains, basal ganglia, that's what it's called, the brain stems, that's what it's called. But over time, we slapped onto that a mammal brain. And that mammal brain module is the part that pulls the chemical levers in our bodies that stores memories and creates uh, emotions and causes uh, motivation, pumps out the kinds of chemicals that help us get up and get out and do the stuff that we need to do, like gathering roots and berries and hunting for dinner and taking care of children. The mammal brain, we've got them as well. But more time goes by. And pretty late in the process, we added a third module right up here in the front of our heads, the neocortex. And this is the part of our brain that thinks big thoughts. This is the part of our brain that does reason and does imagination, the higher functions we call it. Big visions and then the ability to make plans so that those big, vi big visions happen. This is the part of us that can stand back and imagine. We can imagine outcomes, we can see into the future like this imagination. Hey, reptilian brain, if I grab that food that you're telling me to eat right now, sure, I'll eat right now, but I'm also going to alienate the tribe. And I can see the future in which an alienated tribe is gonna make life difficult for me. So uh, my precarious position in the coming winter would argue that maybe I shouldn't grab all the food, even though, reptilian brain, you're telling me I should grab all the food. So I'll have some fewer bites now if I don't, but I'll be a whole lot better off in the coming winter when I am collaboratively part of the whole. So that's the third module, the neocortex that helps us see, imagine into the future. It's a nice feature to have in our heads, so thank you, neocortex. But that's not the part I want to talk about for understanding the spiritual wisdom. The part I want to talk about is the accumulating as we go design process. Because that's the part that helps us understand why the spiritual wisdom is so wise and what the spiritual practices are trying to do. Here's what I mean. Uh, the lizard brain, it doesn't go away. Strap on a shiny new neocortex and the lizard brain isn't gone, uh, but we think it is because we say, wow, this is so cool. We assume that now that I can do higher functioning, now that I can do reason, now that I can make informed, judicious decisions and plan ahead, that's who I am. I am that. No more blind instinct for me, no sir. I am a human now. I am no longer dictated by that brainstem version of me. I've got this shiny new brain. I'm not a lizard. So <clears throat> here's the problem with that. We didn't get rid of the lizard brain and add the human brain. We just strapped more stuff on top of it. So it's still down in there keeping us alive. Thank you, lizard brain. It's keeping us hungry so that we eat. It's keeping us thirsty so we drink. It's keeping us sexual so that we procreate. Still helping us survive and thrive there inside of us, that uh, lizard part of our brain. Same thing with our mammalian brains. We don't replace them. We didn't replace them with our neocortexes. No, we just added on top of them. So they also stay down there doing what they do. They keep generating emotion, 
and memory and thought routines and motivations and strategies to make it in the world. And that's the part I wanted to talk about today is that you and I walk around carrying a mashup brain. Three brains that are sometimes at cross purposes to one another, especially at cross purposes because we no longer live in the world in which that brain evolved to help us survive. We don't live in the world that is red in tooth and claw anymore. And so this mashup brain of ours often creates problems, big troubles. And it's the trouble that is where the ancient wisdom is so helpful. Because what that wisdom has been doing for all these years is working hard for us in the days before neuroscience when the best way to approach that and probably still the best way to approach wisdom is to tell stories. And so folks work hard for a lot of years to make meaning-making stories that we can tell that give us wisdom and point us toward what we ought to be looking for so that we can live a life that is bigger than our evolutionary instincts. Now, Beth mentioned one of those stories a couple weeks ago, our origin story. In the beginning, ultimacy. In the beginning, the divine created stuff. And stuff is beautiful. Stunning, really. Uh, stand back and wow, there's cosmos beauty. And there's sky beauty. And there's mountain and forest beauty. And there's armadillo and polar bear beauty. It is beautiful. And in and amongst all that beauty, there's one creature that has an extra capacity, a feature that doesn't seem to exist in stars or forests or armadillos. It's a spark. It's an ability. It's hard to pin it down. If they'd known about neocortexes, they might have used different language, but they told it in poetry. They told it in story. That we human beings are made out of dirt, formed out of clay, but also carrying another feature, clay animated by the breath of God. Humans made out of lizard brains and mammal brains and neocortexes, but also carrying something more. The divine image, they called it. The divine light, divine spirit. Now, they hurried to tell us that we don't know what those words really mean. Uh, don't even say the word God they taught us because we don't know what we're talking about when we do. But somehow, when we strapped on this new part of our brain, it gave us access to more. Like a receiver that can see ultraviolet light that our eyes can't see. Ultraviolet light exists. It's out there. It's part of reality. But our eyes don't see it. But it's like having this new strapped on brain that we have the capacity to see the more that the ancients told us about. So more is in us. It's in us, but we're not very good at accessing it. Not yet. So they told us, the good life is going to insist that you honor both parts that are within you. You're going to have to honor the dirt part because you have to survive and you have to thrive but you're also going to have to honor the divine part because they're both in there and we need them both. Brains that were designed over so much time, designed primarily to pass on our genes, yeah, that's in us. Brains that swirl with chemicals and impulses and feelings that do survival behaviors, yeah, that's also in us. 
and perceptions that don't always point us to truth, but perceptions that are designed to get us to go here and not there to do this and not do that. Yeah, that's also in us. But so is more. So to help us access the more, the ancients, ancients told us stories, wisdom stories. Yeah, lizard brain. Yeah, clay, but also inner light and inner voice and Holy Spirit. And look for it because it's there. Look for it because it's there. So they told us stories to tell us what to look for. But they also, by the way, what we look for, we tend to find. And by the way, history is full of people who look for that inner light and they found it, it's there, and it's in you just like it's in me. But then they gave us another gift, these ancients. They gave us... uh, a set of tools. They said, when you cannot see beyond the limits of your brain mashup, here are some guidelines for you. Even when you can't see the more, if you will live this way, you're going to be able to access that more even if you can't see it. If you do this and don't do that, if you live this way and don't live that way, you're going to be, by default, living in harmony with more. So they gave us some shortcuts, and they gave us some rules of thumb, tips for living well. And as we saw earlier, grace is one of them. Grace is a very measurable behavior. You can see it on a video camera. Ooh, there's a person doing grace. I guess we don't do video cameras that way anymore. (laughs) Okay, I'm old, (laughs) all right? (laughs) You can see it on a video camera. (laughs) But what it's doing is it's accessing more. It's a shortcut. Live this way, do this thing, and you will be accessing a deeper reality than we tend to intuit, and that is that everything is connected. We tend to intuit that everything is not connected. We tend to intuit that there are some who belong and some who don't belong, but here's a reality that says everyone belongs and everything is connected, and we don't intuit that, but if you live with grace, you will actually be accessing that deeper wisdom, even if you don't see it. So, That's the roundabout part. <laughs> That's the great big circle around. Let's talk about brains and let's talk about, you know, what, a million years of human history. <clears throat> now let me make it very practical with a story. It's a story about a boy, a three-layer brain, and an empty freezer. Now, it's mealtime in this story, and it's mealtime after some really rough days because Dad has behaved badly And son has found out that dad behaved badly and son is conflicted because son is old enough now to see dad's flaws and part of him wants to be very harsh and wants to be very judgmental of dad. The other part, it's his dad. The other part, there's a deep primal love need. So he wants dad to have place in his life. He needs him have that place. So they're in the kitchen. Mom and son are making dinner after some rough days. So son goes to the freezer to get the thing that's going to be necessary to make the meal and it is not there. We are out of it, which is irritating ugh, because now we're going to have to rethink the dinner plan. But the reaction is not irritation. The reaction is big and the reaction is volatile gets a little bit ugly because three brains at odds with one another. 
Lizard brain needs stable parenting. Mammal brain surges up emotional chemicals that are designed upon sensing a problem to provoke an action to solve the problem. And neocortex brain is pretty sure that any action that mammal brain can devise is not going to solve this problem. But son, not aware of any of this stuff, it's just tumult. It's just surging energy. He's just feeling the swirling chemicals. And with nowhere to put all that surging energy, the empty freezer will do. <laughs> and to complicate matters, this is not the first time that mammal brain has had to solve a reptile brain problem. And so, to complicate matters, mammal brain has developed some go-to habits, some strategies over time that have now become deeply habituated. And for some, one of, and for son, one of those deeply habituated habits is a recurring strategy of self-criticism, which is often helpful. Because what self-criticism does is take an unvarnished look at how things went wrong, make an honest assessment of any personal flaws that led to things going wrong, and to begin to make a plan for a better tomorrow, which is not bad. Except that it's not really a strategy anymore. It's now become a habit. It's been used so many times, it's just what son does. And so... Son has a knee-jerk response. This is how Son responds to surges that go on inside when the three brains get conflicted. And this one is particularly unhelpful because uh, in this instance, it wasn't about Son's behavior at all. It was about Dad's behavior. So the knee-jerk strategy that in some settings could be helpful in this setting actually just exacerbates the problem because it creates more surging energy and then that explodes onto the freezer and onto mom who happens to be standing nearby. But in this story, <coughs> mom has been working the circle. Mom has been learning the practices and inviting son along. So after the surge and after accosting the stupid freezer, the conversation begins to turn. Familiar terms come up like, the thing under the thing. Familiar terms like the stories we tell ourselves. And in the 20 minutes that it takes to reconfigure dinner, son has identified the inner critic. Ah, oh, yeah, I know that guy. There he goes, trying to solve a problem that inner criticizing really can't solve. Ah, oh, I see that. Now, remember, this is son. And son is in his late teens. And son just did that, which makes this a pretty remarkable story. And then Son has taken a few breaths. He's actually let the inner critic go and has found some peace. And in the finding has realized that this isn't about my failure. This isn't about my flaw. This isn't about the freezer and it's not about mom. And Son finds peace. Son accesses more. And even though son still doesn't know how to be with dad right now, breath and peace and access to inner light. Now something just like that happened recently and mom, who on the one hand, as you can imagine, hates that son has to go through this, hates that son has to face this struggle. 
on the other hand, realize that something profound has happened. If son can do this, son is ready for a life that is bigger than evolutionary instinct. If son can do this and access that interior light, son is getting ready to live in the inner light. Now our ancient texts warned us about our mashup brains. The prophet Jeremiah told us that our hearts are deceitful, desperately ill. You might have heard desperately wicked, but desperately ill is how one translation says it. Now, Jeremiah didn't have neuroscience language. He just knew that there's a lot of hidden stuff that is happening when sun kicks the freezer. Now later, the ancients figured out what to do after we kick the freezer. They called it the practice of confession. We call it our practice of self-awareness. We dig down into our mashup brains. We try and understand what's going on. We use the tools for self-awareness. So, son has had some practice. Mom taught him to look for the thing under the thing. Taught him tools like the Enneagram, the self-awareness worksheet. And son probably doesn't know this, but what he's been doing has been drawing from ancient wisdom and practices that point us toward more. The more that we so often don't even see. The reality that underlies the reality that we usually live in. What's been happening is that Son has been being equipped to access the interior light. So, <coughs> big picture context, mashup brains and ancient stories that tell us to look beyond the mashup brains to look for something more. The littler story is the tools that help us live well, even when we can't see the reality under the reality. Even when we can't see the more. We can, by following these behaviors and doing these practices, we can actually live in harmony with the deeper reality that has been discerned by so many long before you and I showed up. So, this fall, you're going to be invited to join a group. <laughs> and you're going to be invited to join Sun and to explore the practices and to get good at the practices and to be with one another because we actually do the practices when we do them together. And so I hope when you do, you have some context and understanding for why and what we're doing. So in Dwelling Divine, may it be that we access that which is deeper within us and live from that deep part of ourselves. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your offerings. We are all online givers now, uh, so if you go to our website, the donate button is right at the top. And remember what I say about donating, not just your dollars, but every time we invest time and energy and love and the dollars that it takes to be a healthy community into our social, uh, spiritual community, there is a profound return on investment. What comes back to us is profound. So I would encourage you to uh, keep giving to the community because there is a great return when we do. And that being said, what are you thinking about? What is stirring up in your heart? Um, <clears throat> looks like Angie said already, I'm remembering how these stories were open to mysticism, but after the big schism between Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity, the West became literal. Um, so 
what Angie's describing is kind of an important thing for us to understand right now. Because you and I, <coughs> we walk into the world wearing a pair of colored glasses. And the glasses that we're wearing is colored by the moment in history in which we live. It's called our worldview glasses. And what those glasses do is filter out some things and accentuate some other things. That's what those glasses do. For 500 years, we lived with one worldview. And then now in the last 100, probably for the next 100, we're changing one set of glasses and putting on another. A lot of the tumult that's going on in our nation is because we're changing glasses. And one of the features of the new glasses that we're putting on is our understanding of how to interpret stories. And what Angie highlighted uh, that happened in the West is that we were very literal for a reason. Because we were responding to what were called the dark ages, the, the time of darkness, in which we were living in a time of superstition and, you know, cats will cause bad luck or a broken mirror. Will, we were trying to figure out the world and we were just kind of making stuff up. And then we figured out, oh, wait a minute, we weren't even trying right. You got to do it this way and here's a method and it'll help us. And all of a sudden, we became fixated on certitude and when we became fixated on certitude that became not just what we did with our scientists like Copernicus and like Galileo. It became uh, the, the glasses that we put on. We said the world is this way. You can pin it down, you can fix it, you can do that. Literal is the right way for truth to be. And the thing is, that was wonderful. And you and I live in the world that we live with the blessings that we have because for a long, long time people lived in that worldview. But then we realized there's more. There's more beyond that. And so we begin to realize, well, wait a minute, this paradox thing. Wait a minute, this illusion thing. Wait a minute, we only see parts of it. We don't see the whole thing. Now we go back and we look at the stories in the Bible. We go back and we look at the stories of myth. We go back and we look at our own lives and we interpret it through this lens of realizing that what we're doing is we are all making meaning. Now, we, we're trying our best, but it's not a certain process. It's not a flip a switch, now you're doing it right, Oop, flip a switch, now you're doing it wrong. It isn't that way. It is us stumbling in our ways, trying our best to make meaning. And one of the ways that we do that is we look at what stories are telling us in the moment. The reason that we've told stories so long is because they're elastic. They stretch. Doctrines are brittle. And the thing is, we had some really good doctrines that really helped us for a really long time. But they're brittle, and when they stop working, brittle breaks. But stories are elastic. They grow with us. I think I've used this example before. I read the story of Joseph when I was 14, and it made profound meaning for me as a 14-year-old boy. I read it again in my late 20s, and it made profound meaning to a late 20s-year-old version of Doug, and the meanings were not the same. And then I did it again just before I came here as I was approaching 40. And I looked at the story of Joseph again and it made a different meaning for us because stories can do that. Stories expand and grow with us. But if we fix them in our minds and we don't allow for that, this is going to be an important part of the next lesson, the hero's journey, is because we're going to have to understand we're dealing with the power of these stories of myth. C.S. Lewis kind of intuited this uh, ahead of the culture and he said... Uh, to, tell, to say that something is myth is not to say that it's less true, it's actually to say that it's more true. Because he was friends with Tolkien and you know the, the whole Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings thing. There, what myth says, it takes a truth 
and then it wraps it in layers and layers and generations and generations of meaning making on top of that kernel. So the story of Odysseus, uh, which we'll look at, it's a thing. Did it happen? Doesn't really matter because what matters is all of the people who for all of the history have been making meaning out of that story and applying it to their lives and learning how to make the world work. So, all that came to my mind because Angie wrote something and I sucked up all the time. <laughs> it's 11 o'clock. Anything else you're thinking quick before uh, we go? Okay, now, uh, here, uh, what's your name? Chris? No, no, not you. I mean, I know you. What's your name? Uh, I'm Brett. Brett? Brett, carry that back to Kristen, please. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to turn it on. Here, wait, bring it up. Bring, bring it up. Let me show you. Rachel, push that red button. Oh, damn, we didn't put batteries in it again. <laughs> All right, Kristen, be really loud and I'll repeat it. Next time we're going to get our act together. Yeah. Okay, so uh, sorry that you had to sit through that dead airspace if you're sitting there on the couch, but here's what Kristen said. She said, um, so you told a story about Sun, and Sun has a distinct personality. And Sun has a distinct personality that causes there to be one mammalian brain habit pattern, but there are a whole bunch of other people who have different mammalian brain habit patterns, and on top of that, Son has grown up with a mom who's helping him do this kind of work that we're doing together, this self-awareness work, doing all this uh, studying of our own, looking at the interior world. What about people who have different patterns and what about people who aren't doing that work? Is that accurate? Okay. They're pretty much screwed. <laughs> um, so... That's not completely true, but it's a little bit true. For a lot of human history, we did not have these tools. And nevertheless, people still became saints. You know, we, we say the word saint, what we mean is they emerged into the fullness of their humanity. And so they did it without all of these tools. So it's doable. But there's also some features that existed in the cultures in which people were kind of intuiting their way forward into that that don't exist anymore. One of the primary ways that people emerge into elderhood or saintliness is they get into a marriage and then that marriage just beats the tar out of them and they think they just want to kill somebody and they hate somebody and then they get to the other side of that and then they realize, oh, I can't do this successfully if I am not transformed by this process. And interestingly, I've got a front row seat to my partner also being transformed. That's not the only way, but that's one of the ways. That's one of the ways that this kind of transformation happens. Well, when we don't have the level of commitment that it takes to get through all of that, I want to kill you. I, I think I said this a while ago. I was shocked to hear that Denise said that she used to lie in bed and wish that I'd have a heart attack. <laughs> And the reason I was shocked to hear it is because I used to think the same things. <laughs> and I thought I would never say that out loud. And she said it out loud. <laughs> 
Because to go through that process that is so demanding, well, that's true uh, in a relational context, but it's also true around our money, and it's also true around all the things that inform who we are and how we are. There is this crushing, breaking process. By the way, we're going to talk about that in detail when we talk about the hero's journey. There is this process that we go through, and more and more we are not working with that rhythm. That's why I say we're screwed. So what we're trying to do as a community, and what I think the future of religion is, is to equip people to know what those norms are, to integrate those norms into our lives so that we do teach our children how to do this in a normalized way, so that we do get familiar with and we know the territory and we know the things that we are going to do that are going to evoke this awakening to the interior light. That's what we do. And... Uh, so yeah, just a little bit screwed. I mean, it's possible, but man, the tools make it better. All right, if you would, put your hand on your heart and remember that as we go that we are carriers of the inner divine and extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities to share what's in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with. God bless you. We're dismissed. I went a little bit long. And come join us at the picnic um, in an hour. I'm going to be there a little bit early over at the Art Museum Park. See you next week. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. You can go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is at the top of the page for your computer's browser, at the bottom of the page for your phones. <laughs>